Hello, you're listening to the abridged version of Book Shambles. If you'd like to hear the full-length version of Book Shambles and also get loads of other extra treats and bits and pieces, then why not go to patreon.com slash bookshambles. Anyway, here's the abridged version with loads of really interesting things that were cut out. I mean, there's lots of interesting things you're still going to hear, but some of the things you're missing out on. Hello, welcome to Josie and Robin's Book Shambles, and today we're talking to Rupert Thompson about his book, Barcelona Dreaming. But of course, as usual, we ended up going on quite a few tangents, various different international films. We cover a little bit of Japanese cinema, a little bit of Russian cinema, uh, the certain travelogue element to it as well. Um, but he's, uh, it, 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 I've really enjoyed this conversation. He's someone who's written about so many different ideas, uh, and uh, I hope you enjoy this as well. And I'll just quickly mention, by the way, thank you very much to everyone who supports us via Patreon, because if you do, that's how we keep managing to make these things. Go to patreon.com slash bookshambles. Anyway, here is the thing. If you do go there, then you get longer episodes. And I honestly can tell you that this week in particular, the bit we're cutting out is... Uh, I mean, it's ridiculous that we're cutting it out. It's ridiculous, I can't believe we are, we are cutting out. It's, it's crazy. Anyone who doesn't know about these secrets by the end of it all. And I'll also add that we recorded this intro at the end of the interview, um, which is why Josie is here, because Josie's train was late on the day we recorded this, or it was running late. Uh, so there is no Josie for the first, like, eight or nine minutes of the podcast. And then Josie. So to start with, here is Robin and Rupert. <laughs> I'll tell you what, I, I have to ask you first of all, and I know this is probably the thing that you get asked most often, but it was something that I loved so much, which was when David Bowie's Top 100 Books came out. Mm. And, you know, you were up there with As I Lay Dying, A Clockwork Orange and Viz, all of which, by the way, and I don't use Viz there as some kind of... I, I love Viz uh, as well. I think it's a magnificent list. It was eclectic, wasn't it? <laughs> Oh, it was and Julian James's bicameral mind book and all and and I know that you you had a a point where you almost were were interviewed by him. Is this right? Was it was it for inter actually interview magazine, wasn't it? Yeah, Warhol's magazine interview. And um th this is actually how I knew that he liked what I did, because um I was living in Rome and I got this phone call one morning. Um actually it must have been the afternoon. I got called in the afternoon and um they said, oh, it's Interview Magazine. Um, we've got this new idea, you've got this brilliant new idea. We're gonna get, we're gonna get really famous people to interview people who are less famous, <laughs> you know, like a reversal of the normal thing. And um, I immediately knew which one I was obviously, you know, and so I said, who's the really famous person? And uh, they said, David Bowie. And I kind of was really shocked because he was someone you know, he was someone I always wanted to meet. I mean, and, and he was someone whose music meant a huge amount to me. It was almost like he wrote the soundtrack for the early part of my life, you know, because all those albums from 1970 to probably 1982, those 12 years, you know, I listened to everything. I knew everything. I carried it around with me in my head. So, um, you know, so here I was about going to be interviewed by David Bowie. And I said, well, why, you know, why did you choose him? And, he, and, and the person on the other end said, um, it's just that he really loves your book, which was um, the insult at that time. And that explained, actually, I think that explained something else that had happened um, not long before, which was that I got, I got called up by um, John Cale's manager, you know, John Cale of Velvet Underground. And, um, and the manager said, oh, John loves your book. He wants, uh, he wants to use a page of it. He wants to use page 33. 
as he's going to say the words over music you know he's going to write the music for it as a background um so i kind of um i sort of made a connection between john cale and bowie somehow i thought something must have bowie must have told john cale or something or, or the other way around maybe um but then of course <laughs> doors going um oh, that's right do you want to get it well do you mind no no no. it would be lovely if it turns out to be josie <laughs> It wasn't, it wasn't Josie, it was a floor mop. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, so that, you know, I do have a copy of, um, I have a copy of this, uh, this track somewhere on a CD, you know, of John Cale reading page 33 of The Insult, which is kind of, a, which is a real thrill. I mean, the downside of this story is that, um, is that I, I never got to meet Bowie because he never did interview me in the end. And I never heard why or what. I mean, I did end up in Interview Magazine, you know, kind of posing ridiculously in Prada clothes on a Roman beach, surrounded by all these big people lying down. Um, and, uh, and it, you know, it, it, it never happened. And then, you know, years went by and uh, I wrote this memoir, which he saw, which Bowie kind of appears in. Um, there's a particular scene where me and my brother go and we go and watch the documentary of the concert we never saw, you know, which was Bowie's last Siggy concert in 1973. We could have gone and we decided not to go because he was such a hero that we thought we might be disappointed. You know, that's how that's how idiotic you are when you're young, right? So, um, you know, so we always regretted not having gone to that concert. So when the when the when the documentary of it came out, we we, uh, we went to see that in Eastbourne. It was just after my father had died and we were in a kind of weird mood and we drank too much vodka and orange and basically ended up doing something a bit disgusting <laughs> at the end of the film because we were so fed up with the sound quality. Um, anyway, so there were these Bowie moments in the, in the memoir and, um, and I actually found, I, because I got to know Colin Greenwood from Radiohead, I sort of, he was the only kind of person in that world I really knew. And I got, he helped me find out who Bowie's manager was. And so I got a, a proof copy of the memoir to Bowie. And, and I knew, I know he got it, although he never acknowledged it. Um, so that was in 2010, you know, that was a kind of nudge. I guess it reminded him of my existence maybe. Cause the list you're talking about, you know, the, the rather marvelously titled hundred must read books of all time. <laughs> Um, that came out in 2013, I think. And it was, it was a real thrill to be on it because, I mean, the reason being, um, which will connect with something else that people always say about me, which I've got really fed up with, um, you know, the thing about being overlooked. Uh, and, and this kind of being on Bowie's list kind of really made up for all those prizes I've never won. Mm. But that's and, the weird thing, isn't it, about being overlooked? Because we seem to have such a focus on the prizes. Yeah. And yet the reviews, I mean, I've, you know, I have to be going back and looking at reviews of your book and also obviously of, the, of, of, of Barcelona Dreaming as well. You know, the delight, really. And I think that that's a, a yeah, fantastic. There's a, there's, um, have you ever seen this incredible, I'm thinking you've reminded me of something, which is um, during lockdown, I've been reading, one of my things I set myself was to read books I'd sort of never been able to get into. You know, I was fascinated by the idea of them, but I, whenever I tried to start reading them, I didn't, I couldn't find my way in. And one of those was um, Satan Tango by um, this Hungarian writer whose name I'm probably going to mangle, but 
um, Laszlo Krasnohorkai. Oh, brilliant. someone's just sent that to me saying. Oh, it's 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 amazing. It's amazing because it all, and also it's a, it's an absolutely wonderful example of um, a book and a film because the Hungarian filmmaker Bella Tarr made <laughs> he made a seven and a half hour black and white film of, of the novel, and and that film you have to actually learn a new way of watching movies when you watch this movie because you can't watch it in the way that you watch other films because it's seven and a half hours long and some scenes where almost nothing happens take 10 minutes. And, you know, my, my daughter actually, I remember my daughter who was then probably about 14 and had just dyed her hair black, you know, was going through her emo phase. And she came in and said, oh, dad, you're watching another of those movies with words along the bottom. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, yeah, and this one's seven and a half hours long. <laughs> she sort of rolled her eyes and said, and then I, like the next day, because I watched it in sections, and the next day I said, just sit down with me for a moment and watch this one scene, you know, and just see if you can see anything in it. And it's this amazing scene where it's just two characters, two men in long dark coats, seen from behind, walking down a village street and rubbish, just all this rubbish blowing in the wind past them. And I think they, there's one line in 10 minutes or something. I think one of them says something, but otherwise it's just this, they're just walking. If you got to the end, you kind of said, I see what you mean, Dad, but you know I think that's enough for now. <laughs> but but I mean it's 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 another example of of the of of book into film, you know, because I'm always trying to think of good examples of that, because you have to also you have to shift, you know, you have to do. And he's done a peculiar thing, Bellatar, of almost like putting the whole book in there, but of course it isn't, and it isn't in the same way as in the book. Um, but it's it's another remarkable, you know, it's it's worth a look. See, I find that, that that bit of where there's silence, because I remember when American Beauty came out and much was made of that carrier bag scene. But actually, that I mean, I can't. I... The, 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 there's a scene in American Beauty, which I have to admit, I didn't really like because I went to it on the day it came out and went, the greatest film has been made since Citizen Kane. And I went, well, he's going to turn out to be gay and he's probably going to shoot that man. And then I had to sit through what for me was a kind of more Peyton place thing. But that's just because obviously I'm difficult. Yeah, you're right. It was a bit Peyton place. Yeah, I, th I have to admit, I... Josie's here. Hi, I've been... I, I didn't want to jump in until I'd really heard the thread of the conversation, but hi, I'm sorry. It was just, you. there was a knock on my door about five minutes in and, and Robin said, that'll be Josie. And this floor mop was delivered. <laughs> Listen, <laughs> I would have loved to have been in that mop, be just honest. ready to jump out. It was meant to be a life-like mannequin of Josie, the fact that we've spent all that money on what turns out to be a floor mop is infuriating. No, yeah. well, how do you think I feel? It's a beautiful mop, you know, it's lovely. It's tall, it's elegant, you know. Thank you. Yeah. Finally, someone appreciating yeah. my mop yeah. quality. <laughs> 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 no, we were just we were we were on the kind of I, I was suddenly thinking of that carrier bag sequence in that where the where the plastic bag wafts around yeah. in American Beauty, and actually that to me was like a very short scene of lots of other movies which have loads of scenes like that of mm -hmm. of that silence and like I always think of um, Rupert. Have you seen any Takeshi Kitano movies? Beat Takeshi. Yeah, I love them. I love them. There's so much so like. One of my favourites is Fireworks, I think it's translated as, or Hannah B or Hannah Bo. There's just a yeah. scene where he sat on the hospital bed of his wife and nothing said, and he's having a cigarette. And there's no yeah. need for explaining what's going on mm -hmm. at all. He, he, there's that extraordinary story about Beat Takeshi, isn't there? Where, because apparently he had this really bad motorbike accident. And um, 
hit his head. He had a really, I think he fractured his skull or something and he was in danger for a while. And then he, when he recovered and came out of hospital, he started painting. He'd never painted before. And he painted these fireworks, all these extraordinary paintings. And he always said, he always said about the accident, like, you know, the accident turned him into a genius. <laughs> and, you know, I think there's something, there's something so weird about him where he just sits there his face is kind of still, isn't it? It doesn't move, and yet there's a kind of twitch. He just has yeah. that kind of twitch about him, where his eyes, his eye flickers or something. I mean, I find him really, really charismatic. Have you ever seen him tap dancing to Stand By Me? <laughs> I'll look out for that. He's one of my favorite, I've got a few favorite tap dancing things, but sure. watching him do and, and it's just a beautiful orchestral version to stand by me and he comes on he just tap dances this the thing that i love about him is that because it was around the time that tarantino was getting very famous mm. and i was i sometimes find i'm uneasy with the ha 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 we've just blown someone's brains out ha 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 they're all over whereas i think with beat takeshi there's really funny scenes in it mm. and there's violence and I just find it much more, there's a, I think, I'm trying to remember whether it's in, um, sorry, I'm just rambling on now because I haven't talked no, about it. No, you're not, it's interesting. And I love his work so much, but there's a scene they're larking about on a beach. Yeah. And then he and his new girlfriend are just sat behind a boat and on the other side of the boat is their friend and an assassin comes along and shoots him and then walks away not knowing they're behind the boat. And the look on their face and the sign yeah. and the drama and it's gone straight from a comedic scene, just, it's fantastic and 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 so that's that's what i love about his films is they they're just that they, they they you get attached to them immediately and then you you can't they don't they don't go out of your dreams after you've watched them yeah well, yeah um, no we must have got onto that how did we get onto that because it was it tarkovsky or was yeah it oh it's because i read the book you think where he talks about boredom and he goes right you do a shot you just keep that shot and then it gets boring but you keep on it and then it goes beyond <laughs> boring and i think beyond boring is what we're i think a lot in western culture is something we're terrified of yeah uh, i mean i know as a comic i talk very fast and i say a lot of things and i really wish i could do silence and i wish i could do and and i think when you see it done well and you see nothing needs to be said and you just stay with it I didn't want to I didn't want to get back to my book at all, but just briefly, it's interesting because um, that thing about boring um, in Barcelona Dreaming at the very beginning, um, I write in this kind of very simple, I mean, I think quite boring way, you know, the sentences are quite functional and it just sets the scene and and is this really and I was kind of worried about starting the book in that way because I always like to have I've always loved having great first sentences you know I spent a long time thinking about what the first sentence is going to be like my first the first sentence of my first ever novel was um it was a hot day to be wearing black <laughs> and I was really pleased with that you know I thought that's a great start you know and I can do you know I, if that goes down you know if I never write another book that's that's a good first sentence for the only book I ever write but you know with this one it's like the first sentence is quite dull you know and it's like when I was 21 I married Paul or something Mm -hmm. And and yet there's something about that flatness that that is weirdly um, I, I decided in the end that was weirdly compelling. And it also, of course, allows you to start doing quite unusual things later on if you have that that kind of style. But how did you approach writing in that style? Because that can't have felt 
natural to you? No, I mean, I'm, I'm slightly overdoing it on the dullness. <laughs> maybe, <laughs> maybe, but I mean, do you know what I mean? There's a kind of, um, there's, there's almost, it's almost like a kind of uh, confidence as well, mm. you know, because you're somehow, you're not trying too hard to, to hook people and draw them in. Somehow you, you have the confidence that they're going to stay with you, um, despite it being maybe a little bit slow or um, mm. a little bit, I don't know. It's just, I, I'm really interested, with this book, I was really interested in that contrast between like, sort of hyper real stuff, really ordinary stuff. And then, and then surreal, you know, where, where and if you have both of them working, they, they can kind of work together. You know, the fact that I talk about very ordinary things means I can have the giant appearing in one of the stories, or I can have the chest of drawers turning into a wild boar, you know, I can do quite, mm. I can do really, really sort of surrealistic things, I suppose. And it's as a result almost of having that the reader believing everything and because it seems quite normal you know what i mean yes, kind yes of, completely yeah. and i th i think as well it's it's about getting small details correct so that people trust that the world is correct and then you can yeah. do anything because people are like well i'm safe now this is very safe yeah <laughs> i know because people have sort of said oh my god you like you knew every corner of barcelona you know you it's like you've covered every kind of character that could possibly of course i haven't you know and i didn't i didn't know every part of barcelona but it's like it, it's you know choosing the um the detail the right detail you know at, at the right point and uh, not overloading the reader but just like doing enough because, you know, I think before you arrive, we're just talking about like the space. You have to allow all this space for the reader to walk into. And oh, I see. Yeah, you, I hate... provide too much information, they're, they're crowded out. You know, yes, they don't, they, they, they're just like suffocated by the writer. Mm. And it's almost like you're keeping them away by, by shout. It's like shouting at them or something, you know, if you give them too much information. Mm. So, yeah, um, giving them a long list to remember. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Of what needs to be a really good example of that i wrote i wrote a book ages ago called air and fire which was set in mexico in the, in the 19th century and i remember i, I described uh, the the, her the there's a female protagonist surrounded by three men you know so it's like it's like looking at men from a woman's point of view which is something i've done since as well something i like doing mm -hmm. um but but um i described this woman's hair really carefully you know as being blonde and and um ringletty and and then you know a few months later uh i saw this friend of mine up north and he said um i really like that woman with the red hair in your book and i went i was thinking like woman with red hair woman with red hair i was searching my mind for this character you know i was supposed to have created and um and, I, and he went you know you know the woman with red hair the main woman the woman who you know does this and that and i I went, she had blonde hair. Oh. Oh. And he went, well, I mean, when I read it, I felt she had red hair, you know, so it just kind of, it kind of shows you that, that, you know, there's a, this whole thing about the reader makes up the book, you know, it, yeah. it's a really important part of it. And um, you can really do too much. I guess it's hard as well, because then once somebody's told you that, you might think, ah, it would have worked better if she did yeah. have red hair. Yeah. Made more sense. Maybe, maybe the film was a bit predictable, you know. <laughs> but then the, these people, these sort of people, arrive, and and I know it always sounds a bit 
It sounds a bit like, it sounds a bit crap when writers say that, you know, like this character just arrives, because how can that really happen? But there is like quite a lot about it that's mysterious, the mm. process of writing, even after like, even after 30 years, really so much of it remains mysterious to me and I don't really understand how it works. You know, like that, that question that writers hate, um, where do you get your ideas? Is actually, has actually over the years become more and more fascinating to me because I think it's actually a really interesting question. You know, where, where, where are they coming from? And, you know, and you have to have a story every time you write a book because people are going to ask you that at festivals or in, in interviews. And so, and in the past, sometimes I've had to kind of make up the answer. You know, so the answer is a fiction as well as, you know, as well as yeah. I'm talking about. Um, and then other times, um, where do your ideas about where do your ideas come from? <laughs> <laughs> you have to work so hard as a writer. It's like not only do you have to write the book, you then have to do all this work afterwards. Creating the myth. Yeah, exactly. I, I think it's so interesting as well. The longer that you write in your career, the more different ways that you will have generated uh, stories, the more different, yeah. you know, different methods oh, you will have used, absolutely. different spaces you will have been in. Absolutely, because like this one, I mean, this one is completely different. Barcelona Dreaming is completely different to to any of the others. In in that, in that, um, I had no idea I was going to write about the city, and it was just, I mean, it came out of what happened, which was that we were living there, and then the Lehman Brothers collapsed mm -hmm. in two thousand and eight, and then mm -hmm. there was the credit crunch, and two things happened then for me. Like one was I'd been living off pounds turned into euros, so suddenly the pound dropped against the euro by 30%. So for me, everything in Barcelona went up 30% in terms of what, what it cost, you know, everything from milk, a bottle of milk to like my rent yeah. went up. And at the same time, my advances went down, you know, because advances for writers were slashed. So I suddenly thought, shit, I'm gonna have, you know, we're gonna have to leave. We can't afford to be in Barcelona anymore. Gonna have to go back to London because London was gonna be cheaper despite how weird that sounds. Um, <laughs> Uh, so, uh, so I, and weirdly, I've lived, you know, I've lived a lot of different places and, and yet with Barcelona, I, I had this real overwhelming feeling of melancholy when I realized I was going to have to leave because I wasn't ready to. Hmm. And I had this office in a convent. <laughs> I That's I, a great sentence. Yeah. Itself. I, well, it was, it was brilliant. It's one of the best offices I ever had because, because uh, just a simple room on the ground floor of a convent. Um, I didn't have to bother the nuns. I could just go in a separate door and I, I didn't pay any rent. I just um, paid a donation to the Catholic Church every wow. month of a hundred euros. You know, so your like, work has explicitly funded the Catholic Church. This is what yeah. we learned. <laughs> I, have, I have given money to the Catholic Church. Yeah. <laughs> but, but my wife's a Catholic, so, you know, I it guess balances I'm, out. I'm surrounded by Catholics. Anyway, so um, no, that actually was very weird because often on I would work on Sundays and they'd be singing wow. you know they'd be singing sweetly up above and I'd be writing some scene of dreadful gravity <laughs> in my room and wow. I'd actually feel quite uncomfortable about that you know as if as if I mean if they knew what I was doing would they really approve mm. anyway um Does that improve it though as if you're writing that and you're also feeling a level of guilt you're feeling that you might be bumping your head against almost a taboo yeah. Doesn't that in some ways perhaps kind of enrich the writing to go, oh, those nuns are praising the mystical Lord and I'm destroying <laughs> I the world. I, I don't think I thought about them, honestly. Um, 
But why was I saying that? Oh, because oh, because when I left my so in the last weeks of, in in Barcelona, in the last weeks we were there, um, this convent was right at the back of the city, so quite high up, and I would walk down three hills to get home, and and at the top of the first of those hills, I would often stop and. It was an amazing view of the city. I could see the whole city laid out below me, um, like half in shadow and half in sunlight still, because the sun was kind of setting behind me and um, and the sea beyond. And I just I remember thinking to myself, you know, you've got to you've got to really remember this. You've got to kind of burn this into your mind because soon you won't be seeing it anymore. And there was this awful feeling of um, you know, it's this awful feeling of like the world saying, you know, you love this. Thing, I'm going to take it away from you. You know, there was a kind of cruelty about it oh. all. And, and um, so from one day to the next, I thought I'm going to write about it um, as a way of, as a way of um, keeping the city or remembering it, you know. And I didn't know what I was going to write. I didn't know whether it was going to be fiction, non-fiction, what it was, you know. But from one day to the next, I kind of started. And then, and all I had was this one image of um, a woman being woken in, in the middle of the night by the sound of a man crying nearby, somewhere nearby. Um, and, that, and that really was all I had. And before I did like interviews about the book, you know, or, or events, um, I actually went back and found the first drafts because I couldn't remember how much of the stories were in the first draft because I tend to write very fast first drafts and then loads more drafts thereafter. So, and I went back and it was amazing how much of the so-called stories were, were actually there at the beginning, despite the fact I didn't know what I was going to write. Well, so it's a kind of long way of saying how it, it's utterly mysterious to me. You know, it's like um, it's almost like, and I don't. I'm not like a freaky deaky person in terms of inspiration. You know, so it's not. I'm not really saying the city was kind of telling me its secrets and I was transcribing them. You know, but 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 part of me feels as if. Part of me feels as if that's what was happening, you know, or that's what's happened. Do you? Because I don't know where else it came from. Well, I think it's nice to to allow some half belief in mystic things. I don't think you have yeah. to sort of. Because yeah, because it, there's the inside and the outside as well. You know, it's like this weird balance between because some writers like Henry Miller used to believe they were a kind of vessel for the cosmos. You know. Mm. The, the, the work was coming from this great place, this enormous universal place, and they were channeling it, you know. Mm. And then other writers think more, I would say more writers these days think, you know, that it's coming from the subconscious and yeah. uh, you're not in control of it for that reason. Um, it's one of those things, isn't it? If you knew where your ideas came from, then you would actually know what consciousness was. Then you'd have a Nobel Prize. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I was thinking something else. I was thinking, actually, if you knew where your ideas came from, you'd look in that place. And you think, oh God, there's quite a lot here actually. Shall I do that one or that? It'd <laughs> yeah. be like a weird little room with with ideas in it. Except you'd find all the ones that your subconscious and your unconscious go, don't show him those ideas. You would find yourself <laughs> flooded with all of the banal ideas as well and find go, oh now I can't bloody find the ones that I actually want that I'm but allowed to see. But that's the other thing. That's the other thing. I whenever I get an idea, I mean, usually when I get an idea for a for a novel, it's I do think it's kind of daft you know like or ridiculous or you know I think I think no one else would no other writer I know would think that was an idea worth exploring for two or three years but you then know, what lets like you take the leap do you yeah. have to allow yourself to take the leap like what? well I kind of I just 
Louise Bourgeois, you know, the French artist has yeah. this great, great, um, great phrase about um, what she, she says that, that um, I trust my unconscious completely. My unconscious is my friend. You know, and there is an element of, of sort of, um, I feel as if the ideas come to me for a reason. Like it's, it, it's almost as if the idea knows I'm the person who can do something with it and maybe nobody else could. Mm. You know, it's like one of the, it's not, it's not, um, it's nothing arrogant about it. It's simply that it's, it's a biz, sort of bizarre idea and I'm maybe the one who can do something mm. uh, with it. But it's, it's, but I do often have um, crises, you know, usually about a third of the way through the book where I, where I think you can't do this, you know, it's ridiculous. It wasn't worth entering into in the first place. And it's, it's you know, it's gonna be laughable and people are gonna laugh at you. And, and I, do, I do have that, and I've now learned that that's part of it, you know, that I need, it's almost like I need to have that three or four days panic in the middle somewhere, because if I don't, it means I'm not attempting something that's sort of difficult enough or different enough. Yeah. Yeah, if the whole way through you're like, well, this is an <laughs> easy breeze. <laughs> That's interesting because when you met, met mentioning uh, Louise Bourgeois, just that you're, you seem to, when you look at the plots of your novels, there's no through line where you go, oh, I can see, it might, you know, there might be eventually things that could be psychologically similar being explored, but because I just think of her work where you go around and you go, oh, at this point, she just did lots of lines. Oh, yeah. then she did yeah. weird tumours. Then she did sheds for a while. And I just think that that it does feel like you've not got blocked into any sense of, oh, here comes another Rupert Thompson. I know what I'm going to get, or oh, good, you know this. That you're always whatever. No, usually, I usually get the opposite. Uh, I get what the what on earth is he going to do next? You know, because um, it seems that I'm completely unpredictable, and and I I don't obviously do that deliber deliberately. I mean, I think probably to be really successful, it would be better if I did the same thing over and over again. You know, I think there'd be a much higher chance of success if I did that. Um, I mean, I but, understand that, but those people, they've only got one thing, haven't they? Yeah, but maybe they mine it in a really interesting way, and it, maybe they mine it in a different way each time. But I sort of think that's what I'm doing. I mean, you know, when the critics say he writes a different book every time, I kind of think they're being a bit lazy. And if they, you know, if they really, if they really went below the surface, if they didn't just scratch the surface, they sort of took a couple of layers off, they'd see that there are there are sort of some similar preoccupations, you know, through, through the books. I'm not saying they're all exactly alike, but there are th if I look back, I can sort of start to see things. And in fact, I don't want to. I don't want to look back and I don't want to see things. But, you know, sometimes people force you to do that. Um, so I think, there are, I think there are similarities, but the, um, yeah, I, I think you just, I, I watched a, um, an interview with Werner Herzog the other day and he was talking about ideas and he said that he does, he said something like, well, he does whatever comes to him with great vehemence. That's like, <laughs> he, he took a long time to get to the word vehemence. He couldn't think of it in English, what the word was. And then he finally um, remembered this word. And I thought that was brilliant, you know, just like that was a really good description of the way it happens because when the idea does come, it's not, you're not thinking, is this like, is this something I could do or is this something that's like something else I've done? It just, it, it just is like telling me to do it, you know, and there is a kind of vehemence about it. So that's what I'm, I'm steered by and I go with.
how how vital do you think it's been that you you are someone who's lived in many different places and you've you've changed what you're surrounded by and how important is that in terms of that where do your ideas come from that sense of changing the scenery around you of being an i forget what's it called is it called exo exo psychology which is uh, the psychology of viewing everything as if you're an alien uh, and i was wondering whether how much you're aware of that playing a part there are a couple of things there um first first of all um i think that I sort of come from an unstable place, you know, um, by which I mean Eastbourne. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's unstable because um, it's actually, actually, it's unstable geologically, you know, because you've got these white cliffs of chalk and they keep falling into the sea and there's erosion all the time. And I, one of the things I used to do as a child was go up onto the cliffs where they were highest. And there was this thing where you could, you would lie on your tummy and you would ease towards the edge of the cliff in the knowledge that it could give way at any moment. And you would ease forward to the point where you could look over the edge. And there was this terrifying feeling, well, both terrifying and thrilling, that, that your feet and legs were tilting up behind you and you were actually being tipped over the edge. You know, it was almost like a kind of thrill, but it was dangerous too. And so there's this kind of instability about, about the very place I come from. And also it was unstable, of course, because my mother died when I was eight and so, you know, the stability of family was never there. That was kind of whipped out from under my feet really early on. So I think there's that, that meant that I had no real um, sense of roots. You know, it felt like it didn't really, I didn't really come from anywhere or rather the place I came from was a place that could not be relied on. Hmm. So therefore it was, it was easy to put myself in all these different other places because I very I learned to kind of put down roots quickly wherever I was, and um, and that went hand in hand with a kind of what did you call it exo? I think it's called exo psychology. Yeah, um, because I loved that feeling of um, of being uh, in a place where I didn't understand the language necessarily, or I didn't understand the culture. Um, and not understanding things meant that you were more engaged. It's almost like a paradox. It meant that you were, you were more, um, you were paying more attention. That makes you know, perfect sense. It, you yeah. know, because it, it's important to pay attention. You know, it's like most people. I, I think uh, I've travelled with friends in the past. You know, and I've been amazed where, where to see how they how they behave. You learn a lot about people when you travel with them. And you know, they would say, oh, we've done Havana now, we should move to the next place. And I go, but didn't you, did you see that market then with the voodoo crowns and stuff? And they went, what market? <laughs> and so, you know, they, it's like they're there, but they don't, they're not really looking, they're not really looking in, in the right way. Um, I'm sure they're getting things from it. Yeah, but, but I always find it so distasteful when people say, oh yeah, I did that place. <laughs> it's like, you, you, didn't, you can't do a place. Like, this is not how it works. Like, you're not... You're no, that's precisely why I would claim not to know everything about Barcelona, because even though I was there six, seven years, you know, I still only, I, I saw a slice probably, you know, and I, I would do things like, I would do things like, um, I mean, one of my favourite things in cities is to get on the subway or the tube or the metro, or whatever it's called, and I choose a line and then I go to the end of the line and get out and walk around. Yeah. And it's like, I've done that in Moscow and I've done that in Shanghai, I certainly did it in Barcelona. And it's like, you see a completely different city, you know, when you do that. Um, and it's, to me, it's just as important as, as 
um, you know, seeing the sights or whatever. In fact, in fact, I usually avoid the sights. <laughs> I remember doing that. I've found that in in America, I, th- I can't remember which. I think when I was in Philadelphia the first time, everyone else wanted to go off to some place. So I'm just going to start walking, and I just kept yeah. walking. And suddenly, I found where Edgar Allan Poe's house was. <laughs> it's only since then that I've realised how many houses Edgar Allan Poe had. <laughs> you start walking through the, the the east coast of America, you go. Oh, I've just found another of Edgar Allan Poe's houses. Bloody but you found it by chance, Robin, because because actually you wouldn't have thought of looking for an Edgar Allan Poe house if you just thought, well, what am I going to do today? I'll look in the guidebook. Yeah. You know, wouldn't necessarily have thought of doing that. So yeah. yeah, these accidents, you know, that's that's treasure, you know, isn't it? It's like treasure. Yeah, I love. I, I find that so exciting. It was. It was I remember. I, I did some gigs out in Johannesburg once, and I was really motivated. I found out they did coach trips around Soweto, the town of Soweto. And it was fascinating because it turned out the barman of one of the places I was working at, um, he lived in Soweto and he said, do you want to come out and you meet my mum and stuff like that? And then when we went out there and he took us to these, this weird little bar and stuff like that. And then he said, have a look out the window now. You'll see there's a coach trip going around saying, and over there, look at the poverty. And over, and it's really, it's, it's, I mean, it does feel quite like a kind of horrible J.G. Ballard short story, doesn't it? Those kind of, you know, where, where those from the, the high walled houses every once a year go for a coach trip through poverty. It's like that Sex Pistols track, isn't it? Why is it holiday in other people's misery? <laughs> you know, there's a line and I forget which song it is, which track it is. But yeah, it's exactly that. Um, I wanted to ask you just about I know we haven't we probably haven't talked enough about the book, but uh, just oh, by it, everyone look at the reviews. It's brilliant. <laughs> Um, but I had to. Also, we we rarely talk a lot about the book on this show. We we tend to just talk about it's a it's a jumping off point, isn't it? Yeah. But sorry yeah, to interrupt but... you, Robin, because that's yeah. not no, no. You're right. You're right. Yeah. Don't don't feel you've been shortchanged. Every single author we've <laughs> had on has been shortchanged. Yeah. No, it's more interesting for me as well. You know, not to have to go through those answers or questions I've been through before. You know, so. Also, when you're talking like this, you arrive at the book in different from a different direction. You yes. know, so you might end up saying something new, which would be really good. That's we, what we hope I, for, as opposed to being like, so this yeah. book. Hmm. So otherwise, you just end up, you know, writers are so used to being asked about their books these days that you just trot out. You know, they end up you can't, it's quite hard to avoid not saying some of the same things, you know, because you can't actually make up new answers every time. Mm. Well, you want to be honest about things, and there does tend to be a story that you think, well, that's the best I can get. And then, yeah, yeah. So, Robin, Robin. anyway, Robin, I've (laughs) always dreamt of going to Barcelona, and I was a little bit poorly, so instead, I just imagined what Barcelona was like, and that's where the book comes from. (laughs) It wasn't what you said at A. No, it wasn't, was it? I'm a very changeable human being. no, I, was, I just wanted to brief because I, I know, I, or I think you are, you're an admirer of Flannery o, uh, O'Connor. Mm. And because mm. you, I, I think I was reading a piece that you wrote about um, uh, a, a collection of letters. Um, yeah, for the LRB, yeah. And when I read that, because I was thinking of some of your books as well, that bit where you feel utterly engulfed by the world and the walls around you have become, because the violent bear it away, when I read that, yeah. it felt, I think, that's like my favourite. That's my favourite. It's a proper spell. Yeah. You're, you're constantly surrounded by the dark and these strange share. You know, oh, I just and I just wondered about like her influence because she's such an intriguing author in terms of what her again, when you talk about the difference between what you imagine you're writing 
like you know as someone with with you know no god in in my life whatsoever and these are these books that are, are written from a very religious perspective for for her and yet what you can take from it is, is so many different things yeah i don't I, I i don't really focus on the catholicism that much in her books you know i don't really think about her like a catholic writer but she is i do see her as a kind of it's weird. Me and Nick Cave have got that in common, that kind of that Southern Gothic, you know, we, I, I was really always drawn to it, you know, um, and before Flannery O'Connor, before I discovered her, there was William Faulkner, you know, who, who in, in books like, I don't know, not all his books, but like The Wild Palms, which I read when I was recovering from the worst flu I've ever had. So I read it in a kind of fever, um, which is the best way to read him because the purple stuff doesn't quite get in the way as much. Um, but, you know, books like that, they just had a huge hold over me. And she, Flannery O'Connor um, is kind of one of those sentence magicians. You know, she's just like, she, she, she works magic with the sentences and she does not date. You know, like if you read people like Flannery O'Connor or Jean Reese is another one. Mm, my favorite. sentence, yeah, I love her. Um, but the sent their sentences, those two women, um, their sentences are just as, as uh, relevant and, and modern today as they were then. You know, they yeah. haven't they haven't dated at all in a way that a lot of other people's writing has. And well, um, also thinking about her writing as when it when it was written being quite scandalous and uh, the, the idea that it was so far ahead of its time, people were just overwhelmed by it when it first came out. You know. So. Well, I loved what she used to say about you know because she was always accused of writing about grotesque people. You know, they, they would use that word about her characters. And, and she just thought she was writing about what was around her, you know, yeah, which, which yeah. is true. And, you know, I, I think I was fascinated by that as well because I loved the way she, she saw the grotesque as kind of ordinary and everyday. Mm -hmm. You know, again, if you look hard enough, if you pay enough attention, you'll see that that, you know, it's, it's all around you. Yeah. It's not like someone is deliberately, it's not, she's not deliberately Right, choosing the grotesque things to write about and then writing about them. You know, they're just they're just there. Yeah. Um, and that and that world in the deep south was pretty grotesque. You know, in every way. You know, at that time. I love that. There's a line I think you quoted where she described herself as a, a pigeon-toed only child with a receding chin. <laughs> And yeah. a, you leave me alone, or I'll bite you. Complex. Yeah, yeah, I love that. Leave <laughs> me alone, or I'll bite you. That, though I think you can read them without, you know, the, I'm the same with you in terms of the Catholicism that doesn't really play in my mind, but the leave me alone or I'll bite you, that I think you can often see. Oh, yes, that's always there. Um, and I loved what she said about writing in general. She said, um, she said, writing a novel is like giving birth to a sideways piano. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that gets the difficulty of it, doesn't it? <laughs> the pain. <laughs> So when we're sorry, we're nearly out of time. So I'm wondering where, where we uh, um, where, see. I wanted to ask you as well about because you 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 were mentioning being uh, that kind of sense of not knowing the language and stuff, which made me think then about um, the film The Silence, which then made me think about somebody who's not in the silence. This is how my brain unfortunately works. It's the fact that you also had a letter from Liv Ullman, which to me is like in terms of the accolades. Before you joined us, Josie, we were talking about there was John Cale, there was David Bowie, but then for me as well, Liv Ullman. Oh. God, yeah, right. well, as, as well as a, a director in her own right, and you know all those. Things. Do you still? I mean, does it go away the fact that when you sometimes find out, you go, "But how has that person read my book?" Because they're someone who I've watched all their work, and they live in a different world to me. Because 
do still get that. That's a slightly less mysterious story, Robin, I'm afraid, because I did actually meet her and I gave her my book. Oh, wow. <laughs> oh, well, this one's rubbish. Remove that story, Trent. It's a bad story. It's a bad story. But no, also no. how brilliant that she did read it and liked it. No. Like... It was, she gave me her book and I, uh, I gave her mine and she, and it was brilliant because she did write this wonderful, lovely letter. I mean, there was this moment, there was this moment about four years ago where I was actually just, I suddenly, you know, like you check yourself. There are moments where in life where you just suddenly like check yourself and think, is this really happening? You know, cause I was, I was walking through New York. I was walking through Manhattan with Liv Orman, you know, like just me and her side by side. And I thought, I, when I was 15 and I watched all those movies in Eastbourne on, on you know, whatever, the, those continental movies as they were called, you know, at nine o'clock. And I packed my dad off to bed because I didn't want him watching while I was watching and, and you know, be like Bergman or all those wonderful European directors. And, you know, so I saw her, you know, back then when I was 15 and then, you know, you fast forward and there you are actually chatting to her, you know, as if it's normal. Mm. And it was just, it's just, it's brilliant. Um, so books can do magical things, you know, they can, they can make, I also still love the fact that, um, my first ever fan letter was from Budgie, the drummer of Susie and the Banshees, which was like three sheets of dark blue paper written from West Berlin while they were on tour, saying how much wow. he loved my first book, you know. It's like, that's all you really need, you know. You don't, you don't need prizes and, mm -hmm. I mean, prizes would be good for, for the publishers, you know, because it'd be nice if, if they were repaid for the faith they'd showed in me. And, you know, obviously I would sell much more if I won a prize, um, so it'd be good for them. But you know, from my point of view, as long as I can, as long as I can write every day, as long as I can afford to do that, and and get the odd letter from someone like Liv Ullman, then I'm happy. Yeah, I feel like that's a very good set of motivations. It really is, <laughs> and that's one that I completely understand. You know, um, I also think you. I reckon you probably sell more being on David Bowie's top hundred books of all time than winning the Booker in terms of in the long term. Maybe in the long yeah. term. But, I reckon but... in the long term, there's enough, you know, Bowie's not going away. No. There's um, always going to be people checking that out and being excited by that. Always. No, it's just, it's, it's, they, what they should really do is they should put a sticker on the front of the cover, on the front cover though, don't you think? Oh, absolutely. I, I did mention this to them, but, that, but I'm not really at that publishing company anymore. So uh, I guess they don't have to do what I ask. But that, <laughs> to me, that makes sense because, you know, they, they would sell so many more if there was, in fact, someone told me what it should say, uh, this friend of mine, he said it should say a little gold sticker or something saying David Bowie recommends. Oh, yeah. yeah. He should have done that with all of those. And I'll tell you what, I wish Viz did that every month as well. <laughs> David Bowie <laughs> that would be, uh, um, yeah. It's such a great list. And I think it's wonderful that you're on it. I was, we haven't, we've run out of time, but I, wanted to, I, I hope we maybe can talk about it again because I'm fascinated also in the fact that you know, some of the things you've said about the importance of your memoir as well and how of, of all of the work that you've done that was the one that you felt has has changed your life for, for the better more than anything else that you've worked on yeah uh, and and was the hardest thing of all to write I mean the thing about you know writing about yourself people who don't write think it think that must be the easy thing to do <laughs> be autobiographical and to write about yourself but it's the other way around. It's it's really really difficult. It's the only time in my life that I that I really dreaded going to work and I had to force myself to sit down. You know, 
and get through it. Um, but yeah, it did, uh, and you know, it sounded a bit sort of, um, I didn't mean to sound egotistical when I was asked that question, because um, someone did say, you know, what books have changed your life? And I said, well, can I say two of my own? Well, of course they'll change your life the most. Well, I mean, they've been really... through the process of writing them. That's the best answer. Actually, you know, the memoir did bring my brother back, you know, and, and someone, you know, my brother who I hadn't seen for 23 years. If I hadn't written that book, I probably still wouldn't be, wouldn't know him now. You know, I would never have seen him again. So it's, it's like a massive thing, you know. It also brought my brother back for my other brother. So we all know each other now in a way that we wouldn't have done if I hadn't decided to, to write that book. Wow. So, so can I come back another time? <laughs> yeah, for sure. Thanks so much for talking oh, to us. I'm so welcome. sorry to miss the start. We should probably say Barcelona Dreaming is out now. Uh, it came out in the beginning of, uh, of, of, of June and uh, you can get it now. Thank you very much for listening. Patreon.com slash bookshambles is where you can go to support the show on Patreon, get extended episodes and lots of other goodies. Back next week with another new episode. Don't forget to check out the Science Shambles podcast as well. Have a great week. See you soon. This podcast is part of the Cosmic Shambles Network. Josie Robbins' Book Shambles was produced by Trent Burton of Trunkman Productions.